well might he wish to do so. The writer has not a shadow of a doubt that every Christian who has, in the main current of his life, walked with God, his last hours on earth, normally speaking, for we consider not here the exceptional cases of those taken home suddenly, are the brightest and most blissful of all. Proverbs 4 verse 18 of itself is fully sufficient to warrant this thought. The Christian is not always permitted to bear testimony of this so as to be intelligent unto those surrounding him, but even though his poor body be convulsed with pain and physical unconsciousness set in, yet the soul, cutting adrift from its earthly moorings, is then blessed with a sight and sense of his precious Redeemer such as he never had before. Acts 7 verse 55 Mark the perfect man, and behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. Psalm 37, 37 A peaceful death has concluded the troublous life of many a good man. As the late C. H. Spurgeon said on this verse, With believers it may rain in the morning, thunder at midday, and pour torrents in the afternoon, but it must clear up ere the sun go down. Unquote. Most aptly do his words apply to the case of Jacob. A stormy passage indeed was his, but the waters were smooth as he entered the port. Cloudy and dark were many of the hours of his life, but the sunset bathed it with radiant splendor at its close. By faith, Jacob, when he was a-dying, Hebrews 11.21. Ah, but to die by faith, we must needs live by faith. And a life of faith is not like the shining of the sun on a calm and clear day, its rays meeting with no resistance from the atmosphere. Rather, is it more like the sun rising upon a foggy morning, its rays struggling to pierce through and dispel the opposing mists. Jacob walked by faith, but the exercise thereof encountered many a struggle and had to fight hard for each victory. In spite of all his faults and failings, and each of us is just as full of the same, Jacob dearly prized his interest in the everlasting covenant, trusted in God, and highly esteemed his promises. It is a very faulty and one-sided estimate of his character which fails to take these things into account. The old nature was strong within him, yes, and so too was the new. Though his infirmities led Jacob to employ unlawful means for the procuring of it, yet his heart valued the birthright which profane Esau despised. Genesis 25 Though he yielded unto the foolish suggestions of his mother to deceive Isaac, yet his faith covetously eyed the promises of God. Though there may have been a measure of fleshly bargaining in his vow, yet Jacob was anxious for the Lord to be his God. Genesis 28-21 Though he stole away from Laban in fear, 
When his father-in-law overtook him, he glorified God in the tribute he paid him. Genesis 31:54. Though he was terrified at Esau, nevertheless he sought unto the Lord, pleaded his promises, Genesis 32:12, and obtained an answer of peace. Though later he groveled at the feet of his brother, in the sequel we find him prevailing with God. Genesis 32:28. Equally with Abraham and Isaac, by faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tents. Hebrews 11, verse 9. But it was during the closing days of his life that Jacob's faith shone most brightly. When giving permission for Benjamin to accompany his other sons on their second trip to Egypt, he said, God Almighty, or God the Sufficient One, give you mercy before the man. Genesis 43.14 This was the title under which the Lord had blessed Abraham. Genesis 17.1 As it was also the one Isaac employed when he blessed Jacob. Genesis 28.3 Thus, in using it here, we see how Jacob rested on the covenant promise. Arriving in Egypt, the aged patriarch was presented unto its mighty monarch. Blessed is it to see how he conducted himself, instead of cringing before the ruler of the greatest empire of the old world. We are told that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Genesis 47, verse 7, With becoming dignity he conducted himself as a child of the king of kings. Hebrews 7, verse 7, And carried himself as became an ambassador of the Most High. By faith, Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph. This takes us back to what is recorded in Genesis 48. What is found there is quite distinct from what is said in the next chapter, where Jacob is seen as God's prophet announcing the future of all his twelve sons. But here he is concerned only with Joseph and his two sons. Before considering the particular detail which our text treats of, let us note the sentence which immediately precedes it. And he blessed Joseph, 48 verse 15. In this, we may admire the overruling hand of God and also find here the key to what follows. In Deuteronomy 21.17 we read, But he shall acknowledge the son of the hated for the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he hath. For he is the beginning of his strength, the right of the firstborn is his. It was the right of the firstborn to have a double portion, and this is exactly what we find Jacob bestowing upon Joseph. For both Ephraim and Manasseh were allotted a distinct tribal part and place in the promised inheritance. This, by right, belonged unto Joseph, though the devil had tried to cheat him out of it, using Laban to deceive Jacob by substituting Leah in Rebekah's place, and Joseph was her firstborn. 
And now by the providence of God, the primogeniture is restored to him. So too, God permitted Reuben to sin so that the way might be open for this. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but forasmuch as he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given unto the sons of Joseph. First Chronicles 5 verse 1 Earlier in this interview, Jacob had said, And now thy two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born unto thee in the land of Egypt, before I came unto thee into Egypt, are mine. Genesis 48.5 Those two sons of Joseph had been born to him by an Egyptian wife, and in a foreign land. But now they were to be adopted and incorporated into the body of the Holy Seed. For note, when Jacob blessed them, he said, The angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and let my name be named on them and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. Verse 16. By that blessing, he sought to draw their hearts away from Egypt and their kinfolk there, that they might be annexed to the church and share with the people of God. By faith, Jacob, when he was a-dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph. In this case, the revised version is more accurate. Blessed each of the sons of Joseph, for their blessing was not collective, but a distinctive and discriminating one. In fact, the leading feature of the dying Jacob's faith is most particularly to be seen at this very point. When Joseph brought his two sons before their grandfather to receive his patriarchal blessing, he placed Manasseh the elder to his right hand and Ephraim the younger to his left. His object in this was that Manasseh might receive the first and superior portion. Right there it was that the faith of Jacob was most tested. At this time Joseph was governor over all Egypt and second only to Pharaoh himself in authority and power. Moreover, he was Jacob's favorite son, yet the dying patriarch had now to withstand him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it upon Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand upon Manasseh's head, guiding his hands wittingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. Genesis 48.14 Herein we behold the manner in which the blessing was bestowed. Once more the younger, by the appointment of God, was preferred before the elder, for the Lord distributes his favors as he pleases, saying, is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Matthew 20, verse 15. Unto the high sovereignty of God, Jacob here submissively bowed. It was not a thing of chance that he crossed his hands, for the Hebrew of guiding his hands wickedly is made his hands to understand. It was the understanding of faith for his physical eyes were too dim to see what he was doing. True faith is ever opposed to sight. And he blessed 
Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, Genesis 48, verse 15, Very blessed is this, Despite his physical decay, there was no abatement of his spiritual strength. Notwithstanding the weakness of old age, he abode firm in faith and in the vigorous exercise of it. Here in the verse before us, we behold Jacob recognizing and asserting the covenant which Jehovah had made with his fathers. This is the very life of faith, to lay hold of draw strength from and walk in the light of the everlasting covenant, for it is the foundation of all our blessings, the charter of our inheritance, the guarantee of our eternal glory and bliss. He who keeps it in view will have a happy deathbed, a peaceful end, and a God-honoring exit from this world of sin and suffering. The God which fed me all my life long unto this day. Genesis 48.15 As Jacob had made a solemn acknowledgement of the spiritual blessings which he had received by virtue of the everlasting covenant, so he also owned the temporal mercies of which he had been the favored recipient. As John Owen said, it was a work of faith to retain a precious thankful remembrance of divine providence and a constant provision of all needful temporal supplies from first to last during the whole course of his life. Unquote. As it is an act of faith to cordially consent unto the dealings of God with us in a providential way, so it is a fruit of faith to make a confession by the mouth concerning him. Note, God is honored before those attending him when a dying saint bears testimony unto his faithfulness in having supplied all his need. The angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Genesis 48.16 John Owen declared, He reflects on all the hazards, trials, and evils that befell him and the exercise of his faith in them all. Now all his dangers were past, all his evils conquered, all his fears removed. He retains by faith a sense of the goodness and kindness of God in rescuing him out of them all. End of quote. Thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee. Deuteronomy 8.2 as the children of Israel were called upon to do this at the close of their wilderness journey, so we cannot be more profitably employed in the closing hours of our earthly pilgrimage than by recalling and reviewing that grace which delivered us from so many dangers known and unknown. And let my name be named on them, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Genesis 48, verse 16. Jacob was not ambitious for a continuance of their present greatness in Egypt, but desired for them the blessings of the covenant. Joseph could have left to his sons a rich patrimony in Egypt, 
but he brought them to Jacob to receive his benediction. Ah, the baubles of the world are nothing in comparison with the blessings of Zion. See Psalm 128, verse 5, 134, verse 3, 133, verse 3. The spiritual blessings of the Redeemer far exceed in value the temporal mercies of the Creator. It was the form of which Joseph coveted for his sons and which Jacob now prophetically bestowed. And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head unto Manasseh's head. And Joseph said unto his father, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put thy right hand upon his head. Genesis 48, verses 17 and 18. Here we see the will of man asserting itself, which, when left to itself, is ever opposed to God. Joseph had his wishes concerning the matter and did not hesitate to express them, though, be it noted unto his credit, he meekly acquiesced at the finish. And his father refused and said, I know it, my son, I know it. Genesis 48:19. It was at this point that Jacob's faith shone most mightily. He repeated, I know it, marks the great strength of his faith. He had heard from God, Romans 10:17. He believed God. He submitted to God. Jacob was no more to be influenced by the will of man here than in the preceding verse. Joseph was by the will of the flesh. Faith overcame both. Learn, my reader, that sometimes faith has to cross the wish and will of a loved one. Plainly, it was by faith that the dying Israel blessed each of the sons of Joseph. Certainly it was not by sight. E.W. Bullinger said, To sight, what could be more unlikely than that these two young Egyptian princes, for such they were, should ever forsake Egypt, the land of their birth, and migrate into Canaan? What more improbable than that they should each become a separate tribe? What more unlooked for than that of these two, the younger, should be exalted above the elder, both in importance and number? Unquote. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. Genesis 48.19 Not only does God make a great difference between the elect and the reprobate, but he does not deal alike with his own children neither in temporals nor spirituals. There are some of his favored people to whom God manifests himself more familiarly, grants them more liberal supplies of his grace and more plentiful comforts. There was especially favored three among the twelve apostles. Some Christians have more opportunities to glorify God than others, higher privileges of service, greater abilities and gifts, 
The talents were not distributed equally. One had five, another three, another one. But let us not murmur. All have more than they can improve. And worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. Hebrews 11.21 There is some room for question as to what incident the Apostle is here referring to. Some think that, like Moses did, exceeding fear and quake, Hebrews 12.21, it is entirely a New Testament revelation. Other, the writer included, regarded as alluding to what is recorded in Genesis 47.31. The only difficulty in connection with this view is that here we read Jacob worshipped upon the top of his staff. There, that he bowed himself upon the bed's head. Concerning this variation, we agree with Owen that he did both, namely, bow towards the head of the bed and at the same time lean on his staff, as we are assured by comparing the divine writers together. Unquote. The occasion of Jacob's worship was as follows. And the time drew nigh that Israel must die. And he called his son Joseph and said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and deal kindly and truly with me. Bury me not, I pray thee, in Egypt, but I will die with my fathers, and thou shalt carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he said, I will do as thou hast said. Genesis 47, verses 29 and 30. It was far more than a sentimental whim which moved the patriarch to desire that his body be interred in the Holy Land. It was the working of faith, a blessed exhibition of his confidence in God. It was not the pomp and pageantry of his burial which concerned Jacob, but the place of it which he was so solicitous about. Not in Egypt among idolaters must his bones be laid to rest, for with them he cared not to have any fellowship in life, and now he desired no proximity unto them in death. He would show that God's people are a separated people. No, it was in the burying place of his fathers he wished to be laid. First, to show forth his union with Abraham and Isaac in the covenant. Second, to express his faith in the promises of God, which concerned Canaan and not Egypt. Third, to draw off the minds of his descendants from a continuance in Egypt, setting before them an example that they should think of returning to the promised land at the proper time, and thereby confirming them in the belief of possessing it. Fourth, to signify he would go before them and, as it were, take possession of the land on their behalf. Fifth, to intimate that Canaan was a type of heaven, the better country, Hebrews 11.16, the eternal resting place of all the people of God. The asking of Joseph to place his hand under his thigh was a 
gesture and swearing. Genesis 24 verses 2 and 3 as the raising of the hand now is with us. It was not that Jacob doubted his son's veracity, but it signified the eagerness of his entreaty and the intensity of his mind about the matter. What an important thing it was to him. No doubt it was also designed to forestall any objection which Pharaoh might make after his death. See Genesis 50, verses 5 and 6. Jacob was in bed at the time, but gathering together his little remaining strength, he raised himself to sit upright, and then bowing his body, and so that it might be supported, he leaned upon his staff, worshipping God. The Holy Spirit's mention here of Jacob's reverent gesture in worshipping God intimates to us that it well becomes a worshipper of the Most High to manifest the inward devotion of the soul by a fitting posture of the body. God has redeemed both, and He is to be honored by both. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20 Shall we serve God with that which costs us nothing? Sitting or lying at prayer savors more of sloth and carelessness than of reverence and zero. Carnal men, in pursuit of their fleshly lusts, can weary and waste the body. Shall Christians shelter behind every inconvenience and excuse? Christ exposed his body to the utmost suffering. Shall not his love constrain us to deny selfish ease and slope? Having secured the promise from Joseph that his will should be carried out. Jacob bowed before God in worship, for now he realized the Lord was making good the promise recorded in Genesis 46, verse 4. In his great weakness, he had bowed toward his bed's head so as to adore God, completing now his representation of reverence and faith by leaning upon the top of his staff. In that emblematic action, he signified his complete dependence upon God, testified to his condition as a pilgrim in the earth, and emphasized his weariness of the world and his readiness to part from it. He praised God for all he had done for him and for the approaching prospect of everlasting bliss. Blessed is it to find that the Holy Spirit's final word about Jacob in Scripture Hebrews 11.21 depicts him in the act of worship. Chapter 14 The Faith of Joseph Hebrews 11.22 At the early age of seventeen, Joseph was carried away into a foreign country, into a heathen land. There he remained for many years surrounded by idolaters, and during all that time he probably never came into contact with a single child of God. Moreover, in those days there was no Bible to read, for none of God's Word had then been committed to writing. Yet amid all sorts of temptations and trials, he remained true unto the Lord. Thirteen years in prison did not embitter him. Being made lord over Egypt did not spoil him. 
Evil examples all around did not corrupt him. Oh, the mighty power of divine grace to preserve its favorite objects. But let the reader carefully bear in mind that in his earliest years, Joseph had received a godly training. Oh, how this ought to encourage Christian parents. Do your part in faithfully teaching the children, and with God's blessing it will abide with them, even though they move into a foreign land. It may strike some of our readers that the Apostle made a strange selection here from the remarkable history of Joseph. No reference is given unto his faithfulness to God in declaring what he had made known to him, Genesis 37, 5, his chastity, Genesis 39, 10, his patience under affliction, Psalm 105, verses 18 and 19, his wisdom and prudence, Genesis 42, 24, his overcoming evil with good, Genesis 45, 10, his reverence to his father, and that when he was advanced unto outward dignity above him, Genesis 48, 12, his obedience to his father, Genesis 47.31. Instead, the whole of his memorable life is passed over, and we are introduced to the final scene. But this seeming difficulty is at once removed if we bear in mind the Spirit's scope in this chapter, namely, to encourage the fearful and wavering Hebrews by bringing before them striking examples of the efficacy and sufficiency of faith to carry its favored possessor safely through every difficulty and ultimately conduct him into the promised inheritance. Not only was there a particular reason in the case of those who first received this epistle, why the Holy Spirit should conduct them unto the expiring moments of Joseph, but there is also a wider purpose why, in this description of the whole life of faith, he should do so. Faith is a grace which honors God and stands its possessor in good stead, in death as well as in life. The worldling may appear to prosper and his journey through life seem to be smooth and easy, but how does he fare in the supreme crisis? What support is there for his heart when God calls him to pass out of time into eternity? For what is the hope of the hypocrite though he hath gained when God taketh away his soul? Job 27.8 Ignorance may exclude terror and sottishness may steal the conscience, but there can be no true peace, no firm confidence, no triumphant joy for those out of Christ. Only he can die worshipping and glorifying God for his promises who possesses genuine faith. If the kind providence of God preserves his faculties unto the end, a Christian ought not to be passive in death and die like a beast. No, this is the last time he can do anything for God on earth and therefore he should take a fresh and firm hold of his everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. Second Samuel 23.5 Going over in his mind the amazing grace of the triumph of God toward him, the Father 
and having from the beginning chosen him unto salvation. The Son, for having obeyed, suffered and died in his room instead. The Holy Spirit, for having sought him out when dead in sins, quickened him into newness of life, shed abroad the love of God in his heart, and put a new song in his mouth. He should review the faithfulness and goodness of God toward him all through his pilgrimage. He should rest on the promises and view the glorious future awaiting him. Thereby, praise and thanksgiving will fill his soul and mouth, and God will be greatly honored before the onlookers. When faith is active during the dying hours of a saint, not only is his own heart spiritually upheld and comforted, but God is honored and others are confirmed. A carnal man cannot speak well of the world when he comes to pass through the dark valley. No, he dares not commend his worldly life to others. But a godly man can speak well of God and commend his covenant to others. So it was with Jacob. Genesis 48:15 and 16. So it was with Joshua. Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth, and ye know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing hath failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spake concerning you. All are come to pass unto you, and not one thing hath failed thereof. Joshua 23:14. So it was also with Joseph. He could have left to his sons nobility of blood, a rich patrimony in Egypt, but he brought them to his father to receive his blessing. Genesis 48:12. And what was that? To invest them with the right of entering into the visible privileges of the covenant. Ah, to Joseph. The riches of Egypt were nothing in comparison with the blessings of Zion. And so again now, when his hours on earth were numbered, Joseph thinks not of the temporal position of honor which he had occupied so long, but was engaged only with the things of God and the promised inheritance. See here the power of a godly example. Joseph had witnessed the last acts of his father, and now he follows in his steps. The good examples of superiors and seniors are of great force unto those who look up to them. How careful they should be then of their conduct. Let us seek to emulate that which is praiseworthy in our betters. Philippians 3.17 Hebrews 13.7 By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Hebrews 11.22 First, let us observe the time when Joseph's faith was here exercised. It was during his closing hours upon earth. Most of his long life had been spent in Egypt, and during its later stages had been elevated unto a dizzy height. For as Acts 7.10 tells us, he was made governor or lord over Egypt and over all Pharaoh's house. But neither the honors nor the luxuries which Joseph received while in the land of exile 
May that holy man forget the promises of God, nor bound his soul to the earth. His mind was engaged in higher things than the perishing bubbles of this world. Learn then, my reader, it is only as our hearts ascend to heaven that we are able to look down with contempt upon that which this world prizes so much. From the case of Joseph we may see that earthly honor and wealth do not in themselves injure. Where there is a gracious heart to manage them, they can be employed with advantage and used to God's glory. Many examples may be cited in proof of this. God has ever had a few of his saints even in Caesar's household. Philippians 4.22 Material things are God's gifts, and so must be improved unto his praise. There is as much faith, yea more, in moderating the affections under a full estate as there is in depending upon God for supplies when we have nothing. Nevertheless, to learn how to abound, Philippians 4.12, is a hard lesson. To keep the mind stayed upon God and the heart from settling down here calls for much exercise of soul. Therefore, are we exhorted, if riches increase, set not your heart upon them, Psalm 62.10, but be thankful for them, and seek to use them unto God's honor. No, the poor do not have such temptations to overcome as do the rich. The poor are driven to depend upon God. They have no other alternative save abject despair. But there is more choice to those who have plenty. Their great danger is to lose sight of the giver and become immersed in his gifts. Not so with Joseph. To him Egypt was nothing in comparison with Canaan. Then let us seek grace to be of his spirit. True greatness of mind is to count the highest things of earth as nothing when weighed against the things of heaven. It is a great mercy when the affluence of temporal things do not take the heart off the promises of God, nor weaken faith in them. But for this, there has to be a constant crying unto Him to quicken our spiritual sensibilities, keep us in close communion with Himself, wean us from things below. But neither the riches nor the honors of Egypt could secure Joseph from death, nor did they make him unmindful or afraid of it. The time had arrived when he saw that his end was at hand, and he met it with a confident spirit, and thus it should be with us. But in order to do this, we must be all our lifetime preparing for that hour. Reader, there could be no dissembling then. Allow me to ask, is your soul truly yielded up to God? Do you hold this world with a light hand? Are God's promises your daily food? Life is held by a very uncertain tenure. Unless the Lord returns first, death will be the last great enemy which you have to contend, and you will need to have on all your armor. If you have not on the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, what will you do in the swellings of the Jordan? 
when Satan is often permitted to take his fiercest attack. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel. Let us consider next the strength of his faith. It will be noted by the careful reader that the margin gives an alternative rendering, namely, by faith Joseph, when he died, remembered the departing of the children of Israel. The Greek will allow of either translation, and personally, we believe that the fullness of the Spirit's words require that both meanings be kept before us. That which is in view here is very striking and blessed. The word remembered shows that Joseph's mind was now engaged with the promise which the Lord had made to Abraham, recorded in Genesis 15, 14-16. The alternative translation, he made mention of the departing of the children of Israel, signifies that Joseph testifies his own faith and hope in the true words of the living God. At the end of Joseph's long and memorable career, his thoughts were occupied not so much with what God had wrought for him, but with what he had promised unto his people. In other words, he was dwelling not upon the past, but with that which was yet future. In his heart were the things hoped for. Hebrews 11.1 1. More than two hundred years had passed since Jehovah had spoken what is recorded in Genesis 15. Part of the predictions which he there made had been fulfilled, but to carnal reason there seemed very little prospect that the remainder of it would come to pass. First, God had announced that the seed of Abraham should be a stranger in the land that is not theirs. Genesis 15, verse 13 which had been confirmed when Jacob carried all his household down into Egypt. Second, God had declared the descendants of Abraham should serve the Egyptians, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. Chapter 15, verse 13. But to outward sight, that now appeared most unlikely. The posterity of the patriarchs had been given favor in Pharaoh's eyes. Genesis 45, 16-18 The best of the land was set apart for their use. Genesis 47, 6 There they multiplied exceedingly. Genesis 47, 27 And so great was the respect of the Egyptians that they mourned for Jacob seventy days. Genesis 50, verse 3 Joseph himself was their great benefactor and deliverer from the famine. Why then should his descendants be hated and oppressed by them? Ah, faith does not reason, but believes. Third, God had declared that he would judge the Egyptians for their afflicting of his people, Genesis 15:14, which was fulfilled in the awful plagues recorded in the early chapters of Exodus. Finally, God had promised, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. In the fourth generation they shall come into Canaan, hither again. 15 verses 14 and 16. It was unto this that the heart of Joseph was now looking forward, and nothing but real spiritual faith 
could have counted upon the scene. If, after his death, the Hebrews, without a leader, were to be sorely afflicted, and that for a lengthy season, if they were to be reduced unto helpless slaves, who could reasonably hope that all this should be followed by their leaving the land of Egypt with great substance, and returning to the land of Canaan? Ah, faith! is fully assured that God's promises will be fulfilled, no matter how long they may be delayed. Faith is gifted with long-distance sight, and therefore is it able to look beyond all the hills and mountains of difficulties unto the shining horizon of the divine promises. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.